Thank you. Kim, Kim says hi. Yeah, I'll let her know. It's great. Some of you, it's the first time you've been here. You should have known when it said blazing fire. Just... We live in a culture and a world, actually, the western side of the world, where uh, um, a lot of us have not learned how to connect to our own humanity in terms of the emotional side. And, and, um, and sometimes this is really helpful <laughs> in terms of the process of stepping outside of all the walls that we have built. And um, I come from a non-Pentecostal, non-charismatic, uh, very uh, rigid um, evangelical religious fundamentalism, and um, and I I appreciate um, some of the simplicity and the childlikeness and and the access to the emotional side of our lives, and um, and, I, and I thank you for that. The um, I was having this conversation a couple weeks ago with uh, we have eight uh, grandchildren who are seven years old and under, and uh, we have six children, and our six children, our youngest is twenty one, almost twenty two, and um, um, the eight grandchildren are six of the sixth of eight is from Uganda. Um, she was adopted uh, out of Jinja. And um, was a street child, basically. Um, uh, she is now just, she just turned three years old. And um, so Uganda is a place that is close to our heart in, in many ways. Um, uh, her name is Maisie, which means longed for child. And um, um, as a character. Uh, and we have all the, the stresses and issues inside um, the adoption process, as well as the cultural issues. And for those of you who step into that world, thank you. But it, we know it's not an easy transition. You know, you've got a child who has constantly been given away, and it's going to take some time, right? Um, when uh, Andrew was over there, it took Andrew and Courtney eight, eight weeks to get her out, uh, of Uganda through the process, and um, and when I was in the car one day, and uh, Elle, who is six at the time, who is Maisie's oldest sister, and uh, the the two oldest of the eight grandchildren are seven, and they're 19 days apart, and uh, Elle is the the second of the eight, and Elle, we're driving along, and she looks at me, and she goes, Gramps. Is Maisie always going to be brown? <laughs> See, she's not here yet, but we've seen lots of pictures at this point, right? I said, yeah. She said, huh. Good. This family needs more brown babies. <laughs> oh, boy. The... Uh, a couple weeks ago, I'm talking to our two, she's a little over two years old, Ariana Grace. She says, I'm working on something. She comes in, sit on my lap, and I'm working on something, and 
She looks up at me. She says, Gramps, Jesus is gone. I said, what? Because it had nothing to do with anything we had been kind of chit-chatting about. She said, Jesus is gone. I said, really? Where did he go? She said, to the bottom of the sea. (laughs) I said, really? She said, yep. But hopefully he'll be back in about a year. (laughs) And then she looks at me, she goes, hallelujah. Hallelujah. There you have unadulterated theology right there, let me tell you. I love being a grandfather. Um, I think part of the beauty of being a grandparent is that hopefully by the time you have grandchildren, your kids have beat the snot out of your self-centeredness. And so you're able to be present in a way you couldn't. As you know, I love story, and I love the weaving of the tapestry that a lot of times we're so busy we don't even happen to see. And God is constantly involved in the details of our lives. And um, I didn't grow up that way. I grew up with God being distant and uh, Jesus coming to, you know, build a bridge back to God kind of theology. And, um, and I didn't believe God was good. That was the big issue of my life is trust. And that's what came out of the shack. The big question in the shack is, is God of such a character that I, that I can trust? And if he is, how come he didn't do anything when I got so hurt? That's kind of really part of the underlying struggle that's in the shack. Um, and, um, you know, I wrote it uh, because um, Kim asked me to write something as a gift for our kids. And... And I've written my whole life. Writing was a way to get out my inside world as, a, as I was growing up. Um, I grew up in the highlands of New Guinea, missionary kid, third culture kid. I didn't have technology. Um, and so I had reading to get out of my world and writing to get my inside world out, if that makes any sense to you. So um, I've always written over the years. The uh, first part of my life I wrote really dark stuff stuff that I had to destroy because I couldn't take the risk that my dad would find it. And, um, and then over the years, I began to write gifts for friends and family, you know, poetry and songs and short stories. And Kim had asked me if I would write something as a gift for our kids. Um, and I, what she said was, I want you to put in one place how you think because you think outside the box. And uh, later... You know, a few years later, after I actually wrote the first um, manuscript and made the 15 copies at Office Depot, uh, because I never intended to ever publish this thing, and um, years later, when it got actually printed, Kim says, you know, when I asked you to do this, I was like thinking four to six pages. (laughs) So that tells you how much she... Would you put it how you think in one place? Okay, all right, you get it. So, (laughs) but I love story, so I put it inside of a story, trying to communicate with my children two things, basically. One is, let me tell you about the God who actually showed up in my life, not the one I grew up with. And the second thing was, 
if you're ever in a loss like this, this is what I'd like to tell you. And so both of those themes run through that book. And it turns out that it had this massive connecting point with human beings all over the planet, which is totally unexpected and wonderful and incredible to be a part of, and I don't understand it. And I'm thankfully I had no clue that it was going to unfold like this. You know, everything that mattered to me was in place before I wrote it, and that is really significant. And the other thing is, 15 copies did everything I ever wanted this book to do. Everything. It was a gift I gave to the six kids. Kim got a copy, and the rest I gave to some family and friends. And I went back to work. So it's a whole crazy, wild story of how it unfolded. I don't know if you knew this, but some people had a kind of negative response to it. Um, be careful, those are my people. Right? I come from a tradition where it's not about loving, it's about being right. And, uh, and we don't actually have to read something in order to be experts in it. So, <laughs> people ask me all the time, you know, because I was shipping and receiving and doing janitorial and hotel night clerk. I was working three jobs for about four years. And I was working three jobs when I wrote the book. I sent... Um, I actually wrote most of it on the train to one of my jobs downtown Portland. And uh, um, so this was the sense of humor of God, this whole thing. And people have asked me, how do you deal with the criticism or the negative impact or, you know, people's, you know, reactions? Um, and, um, And here's one of the beautiful things about where I had come to, I told you that everything that matters to me was in place before I wrote the book. That means identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, love, the things that matter, right? If you know who you are, nobody else can tell you, right? And so when people come to me and they're upset about this book, They're not there to tell me about me unless I think they are. And if they're, if they're coming to tell me about me and I think they are, that's when we're going to have a war. Right? But I already know who I am. So I know they're not there to tell me about me because I know. There's nothing they, they can tell me that I don't know about me. So they're coming to tell me in the only language that they know how about what matters to them about what makes them angry, about why they're scared, right? And they'll couch it in theological language or inside questions that are insinuating or uh, accusatory or whatever, but that's what they know. And they're coming to give me a space. And an angry person is at least involved, right? A person who doesn't care, there's not a conversation there. But angry people are involved. And, and it's, it is a great thing to be at a place because, you know, I had such a huge amount of shame in my life that, that any, let me put it this way, any observation I took as a value statement, 
right? Because shame doesn't, it, it destroys your ability to distinguish between the two. You can't distinguish between an observation and a value statement when shame is the underlying reality of your life, right? So when, when we were first married and Kim would say these horrible things to me, like, don't mix the colors with the whites. <laughs> I know. Can you believe that? Here's what I heard her say. I don't know why I married such a loser of a human being as you. She was making an observation. I heard it as a value statement. Right? The flip side of that is when you get a compliment, you don't want it because you think it's a new expectation you're going to fail. Right? Those things because of shame. And shame was a predominant issue in my life for most of my life. And it also was why I couldn't trust anybody, including God. So I was all about a theology where you had to please God. Just give me the rules and tell me what to do and so that I can please God. This trusting thing, not going to happen. So Because you can't trust someone you don't really believe loves you. And you can't trust somebody that's not good all the time. And I was in an environment where those things were missing. So being at a place now in my life where I'm not at risk in those conversations shows me how far the healing has happened in my own life. As a result, I end up in some really cool situations that to me is the activity of God inside the details of our lives uh, that are massively beautiful and surprising. And it's like you've gotten invited to the sandbox and there's all kinds of toys you've never seen before. And you get to be the child, right? We're designed to be the child. And so I was, I was getting on a flight in Asheville, North Carolina. And it was Asheville, North Carolina to Atlanta, which is a 23-minute flight, right? So I'm getting on, and I'm walking down, uh, you know, the jetway, the jet bridge. And I get a nudge. Now, I'm not Pentecostal or charismatic, so it wasn't a vision or it wasn't, you know, you know, any of that kind of stuff. I get a nudge. And like my, my friend Baxter, who's Presbyterian, he gets visuals. So <laughs> if you think the Holy Spirit is limited inside of Scripture or things like that, that's like Baxter says to me. He says, why do you think a group of Presbyterian preachers would stand at an Elton John conference, uh, concert with their, their lighters on fire, waving their hands in the air. That's because the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh. And whether Elton knows it or not, he participates when he taps into some of the beauty of our humanity and the struggles of it in such a way that it's recognizable by Presbyterian pastors. Right? <laughs> so... I love these nudges because I've, I've learned, okay, this, this is, should be interesting. So I'm, I'm going down this jetway, and four people in front of me is a young woman, and, I'm, and I know, I get the nudge, you're sitting with her. She's, and there's only two seats on each side of this little flight. It's a commuter flight from Asheville to, to Atlanta. And I'm going like, all right. 
Cool. So I had a copy of the shack with me, so I get it out of my bag before I get, and I'm on row four or whatever, and, and she, sure enough, stops right there, and she's got two bags, and I go, excuse me, because I'm on the window. And I said, I'm on the window, because she would have to get up anyway. So she, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she puts her bags down, and I step across to get in my seat, and my foot catches one of the loops in one of her bags, and I go down, right? And I'm in this, I'm sprawling there, and I end up with the book right in her face, right? <laughs> Not on purpose, right? I, I just had this feeling, so I had the book, and, and I apologize, and I, I put it in the seat back pocket, right? And, and she's fine, and she gets in, and she sits down, and she turns to me, and she says, you're not going to read that book, are you? See, I get also the thing like, oh, I got to tell you how this book has intercepted my life and blown it to smithereens, right? Like a friend of mine, um, uh, Ronnie, when he first contacted me with an email, he began his email with, I just want you to know you've ruined my life. (laughs) Dot, 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 in the best possible way, right? And uh, that started a whole, that's, Ronnie, uh, and I wanted to mention this, that came to mind earlier tonight, and, and it's a beautiful little piece that I can give to you from Ronnie, who's my friend. Ronnie was a, he's a man's man. He played semi-professional rugby for 25 years. Okay. Now, I'm Canadian, and I did play some rugby. You know, I used to be like six foot five. (laughs) But I played rugby. I was actually a hooker. What? It's a position in rugby. It goes to usually this, one of the smallest guys because they have to hook the ball in a scrum, right? And, um, and the first time I met Ronnie, we got into this wild conversation because uh, he's the one that sent me the email. I'm working um, at the shipping receiving office, and my boss, who's my friend, said, why don't you just have emails come in here? Because he was thinking, this is kind of a cool thing. This is when the book was starting to take off, and we were like drug dealers. We would, people would pull up, <laughs> pop their trunk, We'd give them a box, they'd give us money. It was, it was like amazing, right? And, uh, and, and so Ronnie, he's, he sends me this email and he's, he says, I don't know if you ever go to coffee, but here's my phone number. I live in Park Rose, which is about five miles from where I was working. And so as soon as the email popped in and I read it, I picked up the phone and I called him. And I, he answers the phone and I go, now you, I got to tell you, this is nobody that I know, right? This is an absolute, complete stranger to me. And, and he answers the phone, and I go, so where do you want to go to coffee? And he goes, well, um, uh, well, uh, I, um, um, and we, uh, he said, I live in Park Rose. I said, I know. Um, I live out in Gresham. He goes, oh, okay. So, um, so we talk logistics, and then about a minute into this, he goes, I got to tell you, normally, this far into a conversation, I can figure out who I'm talking to. Who are you? (laughs) 
I said, who, what do you mean, who am I? You're the one who sent me the email. I'm waiting, right? It's a pause. Are you kidding me? Right? Because he realizes it's me. He just sent me the email and I just called him. And he's like, what? So we start talking and that's the afternoon we met at it's a, it's a little coffee place in Gresham called Cafe D. Cafe Delirium is what it actually is, but it's Cafe D. And so we're sitting there talking and that's when we, I find out because I've been just talking to God about I need some intercessors. I need some people praying because I don't know what this is that's happening around this book, but it's like it's like a wildfire was the term that was being used. It's like we're not doing anything and it's like exploding, right? And so I find out that Ronnie is part of a whole network kind of of these intercessor guys. They're firemen, they're all these guys, and they just, they listening prayer people, right? So I'm going like, this is great. So that's when we find out that we have this connection on rugby thing. So we're talking about that. We go down to the city park because his family's coming back from a mission trip down in Mexico. And I'm sitting on this, this uh, picnic table, and I'm on one side with Ronnie. Ronnie's over here. And two of his huge guy friends come over and sit down at the picnic table with us. And one of them across from me says, so how do you know Ronnie? We met on the Internet. Roddy's on the ground. He's laughing so hard. Right? So after that, I was always introduced. This is Paul, Ronnie's Canadian hooker he met on the internet. <laughs> so Ronnie is a, a rugby player. For, for work at the time, he was driving around uh, toxic waste ta- uh, tankers. I mean, eh, for real. And, and he's a poet. And he's an artist. Right, and you and he's Catholic, uh, Irish Catholic background, and and we become like instant friends, and um, and Ronnie, I would listen to him in conversations with people, and this is what I wanted to give you from Ronnie, something to drop inside your conversations, early in conversations with people, as he sat there, he would say to them. By the time we finish this conversation, I want everything that is precious to you to still be precious to you. That is a beautiful thing. I want everything that is right now precious to you to still be precious to you when we're done this conversation. And I have referred back to that so many times inside of a conversation because I come from a background where it's antagonistic. You know, you're trying to shrink other people's space so that it matches yours, that kind of stuff. You want, you want, uh, you want to, because uh, it may be their experience or something is uncomfortable to you, so you want to disqualify it or something. You know, there's always this stuff. And, and Ronnie's just so not like that. Um, he, uh, I'll get back to the woman on the flight. Just, you know, I know. Some people are going like, he is like way off on some kind of trail here. Welcome to my world. All right. So, so this is playing in the sandbox. I saw, just saw a truck. <laughs> so, so about two weeks after I meet Ronnie, there are two different things that happened that were pretty phenomenal. Uh, have you heard me talk about Ronnie at all? 
Okay, this is so cool. So, so about two weeks later, Ronnie wants a case of books. So I go down to Park Rose Post Office to drop him off a case of books. And he meets me there because Park Rose Post Office is right near his house. So he comes around the corner and he looks at me with this case of books and he says, I got one question for you. Why a large black African-American woman? For God the Father, right? In the shack, God the Father, the first time you meet God the Father, she is a large black African-American woman. If you didn't know that, sorry, spoiler alert, too late. <laughs> but I'm sure you've heard something like that. Like, you wouldn't believe what he did, you know. So um, he says, why that? And I tell him a couple things. I tell him about the fact that I grew up with a very angry, white, distant father, and it took me all of 50 years to wipe the face of my father off the face of God, right? And so when I'm writing this for my kids, I am, and I grew up in a black culture. I grew up in the highlands of New Guinea in a tribal culture, right? And so it, I wanted to communicate to my children about the nature and character of God that wasn't this distant, grandfatherly, bearded, narcissistic, right? Mean. I mean... As long as Jesus was between me and God the Father, I was somewhat safe. But if Jesus went to the bathroom, I was toast. <laughs> Some of you have been, we grew up there, same place, right? Okay, yeah, I see that hand. So, <laughs> so I, I tell him, and I said, you know what? I built the persona partly off a friend of mine named Renee Greenwich. Renee Greenwich. And Renee Greenwich and I, the only time I ever was on staff at a church in my life was for a four-square church, and I was working with my age group, which was college and career kids, 20s. And uh, I was 23 at the time. That's where I met Kim, was uh, in that group. And it was kind of the thing in Portland at the time. It it just grew and grew and grew. And and, uh, Renee did music. Uh... And she and I became friends. She was a large, she is, a large black African-American woman. And um, uh, a couple years ago before she passed, she, she and I were having this conversation in her care facility. I was visiting her. And she says, Paul. And she loved the fact that Papa was built partly off of her persona. And uh, she said, so why were you and I always friends? And I said, well, that's easy. We were the only two black people in that white church. <laughs> She says, you're right, you're right. (laughs) She understood. So I tell Ronnie about this, right? This, This guy who I've known for two weeks now, you know, because we had coffee and all this. And tears start running down his face. I go, Ronnie, what's what's going on? He said, you know, the person in my life, and at at this point, Renee was still alive, and he said, the person in my life who had the greatest impact on me was a large black African-American woman. And he said, you won't believe this. Her name was Toni Johnson, and she had passed away two years before this. And I started crying. Toni Johnson and Renee Greenwich were roommates. 
Yeah. Yeah. A few months ago, I was at Costco with Kim, because, you know, we have six kids and now eight grandchildren. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I, I was looking, and they had these in the book section, they had these artistic, um, where you could color in, they had different lines and grids. And, you know, very artistic grids. And you could color them in different ways. And I was looking at this, and I went, Kim, one of the things that Renee Greenwich was famous for was, was she would, in our meetings, right, she would just uh, take a ruler and a pencil on a piece of paper and create grids, and then she would start coloring them in, right? She, and I'm looking at this thing. This reminds me of Renee. This is not long ago. And uh, Renee passed two and a half, three years, three years ago. And, um, and so I'm going like, this reminds me of Renee, the next day, in the mail, I get a package from Ronnie. And he said, I just had a nudge to send you this. And it was a little one of Renee's grids from 12 years ago, 15 years ago. And a book, a copy of The Shack, right? He said, he said I, I wanted to send you this because... I always look for extra copies at Goodwill or whatever because I can get them for a buck or something, you know, or 50 cents. And, and he said, I found this one just the other day and I wanted to send it. It's a first edition copy. And I look and it's signed, but not by me. It's a gift to a man named James and it's written out there and it's signed by Renee Greenwich. Little weavings constantly happening. And God doesn't even do it because he knows it's going to attract your attention. He's going to get some little thanks for that. This is the way that God is. Because it's the way children are. It's the way that when you become free with your children, you become. Or with your grandchildren. Or when you move towards wholeness of some sort. About a week after that. So I mean like, all right. Ronnie, a week after that, we're at St. Arbucks again. And, um, and um, so we're having coffee in the morning, and, and uh, I'm sitting there, and we're talking about how does God look at us? How does God see us, right? Which is kind of what I was talking about last night, the truth of our being. And, and we, we had it in, in a couple of the songs tonight about a name that he knows about us, Right? And um, so we're talking about how does God look at us? How does God see us? And, and Ronnie says to me, I, I know the name he gave me. Right? And, um, and I go, really? Uh, what's the name? And um, he says, uh, I'm going to get mixed up now with the name that Baxter has, but he he says um, it's not the word warrior, but it's a word like that, right? And as soon as he said it, I knew it was true, right? It's one of those things where you hear it and it's like, ah, oh, that is so Ronnie, right? Defender or something like that. And um, and I, in my sense of humor, I said, well, I know what my name is. He goes, what? And it just popped out, 
I mean, I wasn't like I was serious. And I said, I'm the court jester. I mean, who thinks about a court jester? But in the middle of this conversation, it popped out. I'm the court jester. He laughed. He thought that was funny, which is the whole intention, right? I was trying to be funny. And, um, and he laughed. He got in his truck, and he started to drive away. And I take two steps toward the little house that we had in Gresham, where I'd finished writing the shack, this little place, the rental house. And I take a couple steps, and I get this strong nudge that says, you're not. I'm like, I was just trying to be funny, right? He <laughs> says, no, you're not. Okay, I was just... I mean, it was so strong that I had to pull out my phone, call Ronnie, and I said, you know when I said I was the jester? Oh, what he told me was that God has told me that I'm his champion. That's the word, right? And as soon as he said it, I knew it. That's total Ron Graves, right? So now I pick out the phone, and I call his number, and I said, Ronnie, you know that I just told you that I was the court jester? I'm not. But now I know who I am. Have you ever been talking and you have no idea what you're saying exactly? Right? This is part of this whole relational kind of thing with God, right? It's like, oh, come on, right? So I, and I say, but now I know what my name is. I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth, right? But I'm saying it. I'm listening to myself going like, really? And he says, so, what is it? I said, I'm the riddle, the joke, and the enigma in the mouth of the court jester. And he goes, oh, that is so true. And I'm going like, what the hell? (laughs) Right? I don't even know what that means. I mean, seriously, I hadn't thought about jesters for like, since I was a kid. And now I'm telling him I'm the riddle, the joke, and the enigma in the mouth of the court jester. And he thinks that is perfect. So I don't tell him that I don't understand. I just, yeah, isn't that cool? Cool. So I walk back to our house, and I walk in, and Kim's there, and I say, i got to tell you about this conversation I just had with Ronnie. And I walk her through it, and, and as soon as I say, and I told him, I'm the joke, the riddle, and the enigma that's in the mouth of the court jester. And Kim goes, oh, that is so true. (laughs) And I go, yeah, isn't it? Because I don't want to tell her I have no idea what I'm saying. Or she obviously knows it means something, but I don't want to ask. Right? I'm going like, what is that? So this was on a Sunday morning, early on a Sunday morning. On Monday, I get to work. And Mike, my friend who's my boss, the one that we've been dealing the books out of the back of his warehouse, and Mike, he says to me, hey, because we did shipping and receiving of soldering parts and computer um, um, soldering equipment and things like that, and uh, circuit board manufacturing. And he says, um, hey, we got an invitation from General Tool to their annual golf uh, 18 holes and barbecue this Saturday at Resort at the Mountains up at Mount Hood. Now, I'm not a, like, I, I'll go, I like golfing, and I, and I will go if my friends go. I would not do it on my own, because there's kind of like, 
whatever. And, but I, I enjoy it, right? But I'd been at Resort of the Mountains one time in my life, and it was 15 years at least before this. Maybe 20, 15, probably closer to 15. I'd been there one time. It's beautiful. It's a, it's a resort golf course. It's set right into the base of Mount Hood. It's just beautiful. And, and so it was like 18 holes with a golf cart, um, barbecue, plus they're giving a door prize to every person who comes from General Tool. <laughs> That's a no-brainer right there, right? So he says, it's this Saturday. You want to go? I said, absolutely. He said, well, why don't you drive over to my house, and then we'll just drive up together. He said, I want to go up early enough to have breakfast, and then we'll you know, do the 18 holes and all this. Great. So we drive up there that Saturday, and we walk into their um, uh, cafeteria uh, restaurant, and I cannot believe what I see. The entire place is packed with court jesters. <laughs> the little beanie things that court jesters have, right? Right? I didn't even know these guys existed. But the, the royal order of jesters decided to have their national conference that Saturday at Resort of the Mountains. Right? This is the Saturday after the Sunday before that I had this conversation with Ronnie about. And now I, there's 101 court jesters at the golf course. And I'm kind of stunned about the whole thing. Right? And I'm going like, oh my God, nobody's going to believe this. So I walk over to the first table and I say, hey, I got a whole bunch of friends who are not going to believe that you guys are actually here or exist. <laughs> Do you have a souvenir or something that I could have that just proves you're here? And they went, talk to him. And there's a big court jester sitting over there at a table. And I walk over to him. Turns out he's the director of the Royal Order of Jesters, right? And I tell him my dilemma here and I and he gives me the pin you know the the metal pin I have it it's in my bag in my in the hotel room but it is a a pin for the royal order of jesters and and it's the director's pin and I'm going like this is incredible and he says well you do know what a court jester is don't you and I go well of course N no He said, well, let me tell you. The court jester was the highest advisor to the king. And the role of the court jester was in a room full of agendas to communicate to the king through any means necessary the truth. And suddenly it dawns on me that throughout the history of literature, Harlequin, the court jester, has been a type of Jesus. Jesus, who comes into a world full of agendas and communicates through any means necessary to the king and to the people what the truth is. And it drops like a dime. And I get to be the joke, a good joke, a riddle and an enigma that's in the mouth of the court jester. The next, yeah. 
one of those crazy little pieces. The next day, Ronnie gives me, I met him for coffee again, and he says, I I brought something for you. I said, what? Because I'm going to tell him about the Royal Order of Jesters, and I got the pin with me to show him. And he says, I just felt like I needed to give you the little pin from from our um, our uh, team, our rugby team. Um, it's kind of worn out, but I wanted you to have it. And I look at it, and it's a pig in a jester's outfit, smoking a joint. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and we're going like, I'm telling them this thing. And we're just like, are you kidding me? Look. And a little boy walks by with his mom and he's got a court jester hat. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, how many times can we layer this thing? <laughs> you know? And I'm going, all right, I get it. <laughs> and uh, so there is an organization that um, I'm peripherally involved in because I... I accidentally helped start it (laughs) because of the shack. Right now in the U.S. military every day, 23 veterans and two enlisted men kill themselves. Every day. The highest percentage are special forces guys. And I have a friend who was the master chief of the U.S. Air Force, the highest enlisted ranking officer in the U.S. Air Force, who started an organization called Operation Restored Warrior to help especially these special forces guys because they are absolutely disintegrating. They've been taught how to disconnect their humanity to such an extent that they have become killing machines. And when the system is done with them, They have no way to reconnect with their humanity. They've got suicidal ideation, post-traumatic. They've got combat disorder, and they're falling to pieces. And they're putting the guns in their mouths and ending it. 23 veterans, two enlisted men every day. And my friend, Paul Lavelle, started this thing where they take five to seven of these guys for five days. And the only answer they've ever found is Jesus. And he doesn't come from any kind of a religious background at all. In fact, he was such an agnostic atheist that he would go out of his way to make sure nobody who claimed any relationship to the Bible, Jesus, or the church ever got promoted. And his story is wild and crazy. But... In these five days, they reconnect these these men back to their humanity, and the only person that they know that can do that is Jesus, because Jesus can meet these men at the core wounding, and mo- and many of them are sexually abused from when they were children, because the military can find them and complete the disconnection so that they can become dehumanized in such a way that that is just a target, not a human being. Over 500 Special Forces guys have gone through these drop zones, and their success rate is 100%. Okay? So, yeah. (laughs) 
They had a reunion up there a year ago uh, up in the Colorado mountains, and about 60 of these guys showed up, and they asked me to come and spend a couple days with them, and I did. And they presented me with a sword, a Claymore sword, and inscribed on it was Jester. Little bits and pieces that sometimes you get to see. Let me tell you, the prayer you pray in the closet of your home, the kindness that you extend in the face of abuse or violence, the forgiveness that you extend, every one of those things ripples into the fabric of the cosmos and changes it. You matter. You matter. You're not going to actually read that book, are you? (laughs) I said, well, I've read it. She said, so did I. I didn't like it. I said, oh, cool. What didn't you like about it? And it was like I opened a machine gun nest. (laughs) I mean, she went off on all the things that she didn't like it. Generalized. It... Total is a violation of the principles of God. The theology is bad. I didn't like the portrayal of the Trinity. Boom, 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 right? She takes a breath at one point, and I say, can I ask you a question? What didn't you like about the Trinity? She goes, I don't remember, but I didn't like it. So boom, 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 right? And off she is again. And, and now her comments are sort of getting personal. Not that I'd take it personally. but it, And so the next time she takes a breath, I say, can I ask you a question? We haven't even left the landing strip yet, right? We still got 23 minutes. And I said, can I ask you a question? What did, do you know the author? Because, I mean, if you, if you listen to the conversation, it sounds like she knew me, right? So I said, do you know the author? She goes, no. And I, um, I almost could see the little tiny light bulb above her head (laughs) flicker, right? And she looks at me and she goes, you're not the author, are you? (laughs) Yep. No, you're not. Yeah, I am. No, you're not. I had to show her my driver's license, two credit cards, and my Delta SkyMiles card to prove to her that I was William Paul Young. Okay, so what's she supposed to do now, right? So she does the Christian thing. This is such a God thing. What does that even mean, right? I'm thinking... So, do you think like you've been sent here to make sure that I, you know, say the magic words and get inside the kingdom kind of thing? And so, it's it's like, I said, look, I don't care that you don't like the book. It's totally fine with me, really. And I don't. You know, the fact that it stirs stuff up in people, how cool is that? That's, to me, the messing around of the Holy Spirit inside people's paradigms, right? So, why would I take that personally? The 15 copies did everything I ever wanted it to do. All the rest of this stuff... You know, I'm not in charge here. So, so I'm like, 
I'm like, I don't, you know what? That doesn't, tell me, I want to know your story. How did you end up on this flight sitting next to me? Because think about it, right? Oh, this is just like random coincidence? Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> like, these things are not like that. So I'm here, and how did you get here? And this is what she begins to tell me. A year prior to this, her life was on an absolute slide into the darkest hole you can imagine. She was suicidal. She was drug addicted. She, was, she had lost. She was homeless. Her life was a wreck. And she basically crawled into the back of a church who told her about Jesus. And Jesus reached into that and yanked her out. And now she was terrified that something would would make his hold on her release because this is all she knew that had helped her get out. Do you understand? So she is hanging on to Jesus with both hands and fists clenched. And, and I'm going, that's incredible. And inside those moments, you know, you can... When the Holy Spirit is, is so crafting something, you can say Kleenex and it'll be the right thing. You know, it's just one of those deals. And it's like I was saying last night, one of the things the Holy Spirit loves to do is make us look really good. So that's why we say stuff that we have never said before. And we don't bother to tell the person we've never said that because the Holy Spirit doesn't care if we tell the person and they think we're brilliant. So just part of the beauty of all this stuff and children are like that oh yeah so so i i say to her look i i so am thrilled for you i said i've been walking a relationship with jesus for a long long lot of years and you are on one of the most singular exciting adventures a human being can encounter and i love your zeal I love how hard you're holding on to this. But if God was sitting right here right now, I think I know what he'd say to you. Right? And I'm saying this again. Okay, this should be interesting. (laughs) And she says, what? And I put my hand on her shoulder and I said, relax. Relax. And tears start just running down. I said, relax. It's his grip on you, not yours on him. Relax. He did this without your vote. Relax. And we begin to talk, and she begins to unfold for 23 minutes. We land. She gives me this huge hug, still tears. She says, I'll read it. I say, I don't care. (laughs) I don't know if you've been in Atlanta airport. It's a zoo. You always end up in a, in a, like a gate that is about seven miles from the one you have to connect to, you know. So about 20 minutes later, I'm connecting to the little train thing that goes under there. And she comes in. 
I mean, 20 minutes later, who knows why, when, what, whatever, and she comes in, and it's Paul. I'm like her best friend, right? And it's like that. All, all the deterioration of ideology disappeared inside the context of relationship. And that is part of the beauty that we're involved in. I get to be inside these kind of stories that are like this. And I'm telling you, they're happening around you. The problem is, and I was saying this uh, to uh, Susanna Brent uh, and, and others, is that we get so busy in imaginations that don't exist, which I call future tripping. We get so busy in imaginations that don't exist that we try to spend today's grace on them. And so we're never present enough to see what's even going on around us. Right? And so part of this, becoming a child, is that you learn to live inside of just one day because it's all you have. That's the only real world there is. Everything else is sheer imagination. And we will craft it out of all of our fears and insecurities and the things that you know we want to control. And we will create those imaginations in which God does not exist. Even in those imaginations, you won't turn around and go, oh, well, there's Jesus. I'm totally good. You know, you'll just freak out because there is no Jesus in those things that aren't real. Right? But we will spend grace that we get for one day on things that don't exist, and then we're not present to see what's going on around us. And I love these stories of how the weavings intersect. Um, I was at a gathering this summer, and um, um, a pastor from Nashville, and this was up in British Columbia, and a pastor from Nashville, um, I was talking to some folks today, and I said, I got caught, I was going to go try to talk to a friend of mine, and I got caught on the way out. This is why I got caught. And so my this guy comes up to me, and he says, I know that this is not a place about who you are or any of that. It wasn't. It was it was a sort of a break thing, but it, he, he knew who I was because of something else. And he said, I got a story for you. Would you like to hear it? And I go, yeah, because all these stories are praises. They are. It's kind of like, Oh my gosh, look what I got to be a part of without even knowing. So he said, so I'm a pastor in Nashville, and we've been going down to the GR, uh, the uh, uh, DR, Dominican Republic, right? We've been going down to the D- Dominican Republic for a, a number of years to help build homes for the poor. And so it's been one of those things that our community of faith has been involved with. And so um, he said, so five years ago, he said, I haven't been back there for five years, but five years ago, uh, this is a couple months ago that we had this conversation. So he says, five years ago, I decided um, uh, I was down there, but I took the shack with me to read it because everybody was talking about it. And it, it wrecked my life. He said, it turned my whole world upside down. And I'm just like, what is this, right? So he said, it, it just reframed everything for me in a way that made sense. And it asked my questions, right? Which is what happened with this thing. So he says, so I'm down there. And when we're done our missions part of it, I've got three, day, uh, three days where I am just going to take a break and go down to the resort area that's on the beach, uh, a big, long beach and has all these hotels and stuff. And you know, I'm just taking a break. So the first day I'm down there by myself, I'm walking down the beach and I spot a woman sitting in a chair on the beach reading the shack. And I think, I'm going to talk to her. We can speak shack. 
Because if you've read the book, you know that one of the beautiful things that happened um, that I did not intend, but the book has given people a language to have a conversation about God that's not religious. Right? And so it's bridged all of these barriers all over the place uh, with uh, people from different perspectives, faith-wise or not at all. I'm the only person I know that gets invited to the Atheist Book Club and speaks at the National Conference of Catholic Cemetery Directors and New Age Conferences in Europe, right? And Southern Baptist megachurches, you know? I mean, it's like all over the map. And uh, I love it because this is a conversation about our humanity and about Jesus, about who is this God. So he says, I, I just had read the book, and she's reading it. So I stop and say, what do you think of that book? This woman looks up at him and says, I just grabbed it at an airport bookstore, and it is raising so many questions for me, and I have nobody to talk to. I don't know what you know about pastors, but, and it wasn't even about that. It was like, this was, a, he says, I'll talk to you. So for two days, they sat on the beach in the Dominican Republic as she went through the book and asked him all my questions. And he said to me, her name is Sherry. I learned her name. And she told me, he says, she told me that her only connection to God had been 10 years of sexual molestation by a priest in her childhood. And so she said, I, this whole part of my world was shut down. And, and this book just went past all of that and started raising these questions. So he said, in two days... He said, I had the honor and privilege in the most gentle of ways introducing her to an ongoing opening relationship with Jesus. And he said, here's the crazy thing. This was five years ago. I know her name was Sherry, but I didn't get any of her contact information. We, we talked for two days. I don't know anything about her. I'm not even sur- sure what city she lives in. I think it's New York, but I'm not sure. And I, and I didn't get her contact or email or anything. And I get home to Nashville, and I'm talking about Sherry to my family. And I write an article in guideposts about Sherry and this encounter, and I talk to my congregation and community, and so everybody knows about Sherry but I don't know who she is really and where she lives and any of that. So he said this year, 2014, because this was a few months ago, he said earlier this year, after five years not being in the Dominican Republic, I went back with my family to take a vacation. And we went to the resort area. And my kids, they all know, and my wife, and this is like, this is the beach I met Sherry that I've been talking about. Right, so it's we're all excited about it, and we're on the beach. And he said, "So, he said there's a storm coming in, and I'm I have one of these little flyers for snorkeling. You know, when you go to the beach, um, they'll give you flyers. Come snorkeling with us, or scuba diving, or whatever." And he said, "So I somebody had handed me a flyer, 
and the wind came in from the ocean and whipped it out of my hand and took it down the beach. So my son, who's 13, and I decide to chase it down, and it becomes a kind of a joke because every time we got close, the wind would pick it up and take it further. And, and somehow, he said, we decided that the way that we needed to get this piece of paper was we had to jump on it with our feet. So we'd try, and the wind would take it out. And so we're like quarter to a half a mile down the beach chasing this little piece of paper, right? And finally, it's like the wind dies down. At the same time, I jump, and I land with both feet on this flyer, and I look up, and Sherry is sitting there. And she looks up. She's reading Crossroads. And she bursts into tears, and he does too, and he says, Sherry, I've kind of been thinking you were an angel. And she says, and I've been thinking you were an angel. (laughs) And he gets to introduce his family to Sherry, right? And he's telling me this, and he's just bawling, and my wife's standing next, and a couple of my kids, and we're all a mess. Right? Because of the kindness of this little sort of incidental, beautiful weaving and tapestry. I love that. I love that there is a God in the details. I love that there is a God who will climb inside of our histories, inside of our world, knowing full well what's there. This is a God who is not such a being that he cannot look on sin or turns his face away. I don't know if you know about the mythology I grew up with, but we had this thing about God the Father beating up his son in order to be right with other people. And, and when he did that, he was, his son was so um, horrible in his sight that he had to turn his back. I don't know if any of you heard that kind of stuff, but I grew up that way. And we got some of it from the line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because that's in the mouth of Jesus. Can I tell you why that mythology is wrong? And And part of it is this. Jesus has never known a moment of his existence prior to the incarnation when he becomes fully human in our mortality, when he becomes flesh, and then he becomes sin. And that's what it says. He became sin. You figure that out. If we're talking about Jesus, who is God, who enters our mortality and becomes sin, you've got some major split going on inside the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right from the get-go, if you've got a theology where the father has to deny or turn his back on the son. You you understand? We have a problem here. Not only that, what's the Holy Spirit doing? Is the Holy Spirit trying to protect the son from an abusive father? Or is the Holy Spirit siding with the father and staying silent while he abuses the son? I mean, what's the whole scenario here? We've got a problem. But I grew up with the father like that. So he was angry and abusive, and my mother was absolutely silent. So that theology made some sense and resonated in me to one degree or another. But this is Jesus, who has never known a moment of his existence where he could not sense the presence and the affection of the Father. 
right? He's baptized in the Spirit, born of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Everything is about the connection. He says, I don't say anything unless I hear the Father say it. I don't do anything unless I see the Father do it, right? There is this intimate, ongoing, relational reality that Jesus is participant in. And then he looks toward Jerusalem and he knows what's coming. He knows. He is. He knows and he is going to participate with the wrath of humanity poured out on a God who submits. And he knows it. And he is in his humanity struggling with it. Think about this. He knows he is going to enter into my blindness, my inability to hear God, my inability to sense his affection. He is going to enter into my lostness inside the most intimate eternal existing relationship that he has ever known. That's going to be broken, not in reality, but because he's going to enter into my darkness, right? And not just mine, Paul Young's, he's going to enter in for the whole of humanity for all time. And he doesn't want to do it. He's going to, but he doesn't want this. Is there another way where I don't have to lose the sense of your affection, where I don't know that sense of separation? So his father sends him two friends to encourage him. And this is one of the most profound passages that keeps coming back and back and back. It's not a parable. And it's not in the book of Revelation. This is in the Gospels. Jesus meets with two friends who've been dead for hundreds of years. Yeah. Moses and Elijah. I mean, like, dead for hundreds of years. These guys are aware of what Jesus is facing and they've come to encourage him and specifically about the ascension. That's what it says. And you've got the entire Moses tradition and the prophets all recognizing the centrality of Jesus. But these are two human beings who have crossed through that veil to encourage because the Father knows the Son needs some company right now because everybody else is going to disappear. And Jesus later, when he's talking to his disciples in the upper room, before going to the Garden of Gethsemane, says to them, you're going to think that I'm alone, but I am never alone. He says that. And then he gets there and he's struggling with this thing and he's saying, guys, Can you just be with me? Because I can't deal with this. They have no clue what he's going to face. I made a mistake in the shack. When Mackenzie goes back to the shack and he goes into this transformed place, the first time he 
he is, you know, out of the out of the brokenness of his world comes the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who he doesn't recognize. And he looks to where Missy's bloodstain should be. And when I wrote the first manuscript, and it's in your book this way, it was gone. Mistake. It should still be there. Just because you work through the trauma and the woundedness of history doesn't mean it disappears. The beauty is that God incorporates that and what has been meant for death and hurt becomes a place where he grows something living. Let me quote you the lines of a hit song. I love music. I was a rock and roll disc jockey for four years. I've kind of done everything. And, um, except neurosurgery. I haven't done that. <laughs> but I am a doctor. But I didn't earn it. And um, the school that I went to for a year and graduated and where I dropped my pants at graduation, they gave me an honorary doctorate. So, just so you know. But nobody will let me practice. So, <laughs> it's a true story. So um, my uh, this hit song. Let me let me tell you the the. Uh, this is in the middle of the song, and it says, "This um, you do not despise the affliction of the afflicted, nor will you turn your face from him. And when he cries, you will hear." That's those are lines in the middle of a hit song. Let me tell you again. He does not despise the affliction, the broken woundedness of the afflicted, nor will he turn his face from him. And, but when he cries, he will hear. Okay, do you know what the first line of that hit song is? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. And Psalm 22, Psalms were hit songs. Psalm 22 is the psalm of the crucifixion. Psalm 23 is the psalm of the grave. Yea, though I walk through the shadows of the valley of death. And Psalm 24 is the psalm of ascension, resurrection and ascension. Psalm 23 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And halfway through, somewhere around 16, it says, You do not despise the affliction of the afflicted, nor will you turn your face from him. And when he cries, you will hear. And guess how the psalm ends? He finished it. That's how it ends. He finished it. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he becomes sin, mine. He is submitting himself to the greatest torture device that human beings have ever crafted in their darkness. This is a machine of torture. It has no other purpose. There is nothing of light about this machine. It is a torturous machine whose only 
purpose was to keep a human being alive as long as possible, in as much pain as possible, and then extract by force their breath. It is a death by suffocation. That is what a cross is. God never originated the cross. But God knew if he created this high order of being, they would. And this iconic torture machine is where God is going to submit his very life. And in submitting his life to our machine, he will destroy it. But even more so, he will raise it as an icon and a monument of grace. And when he cries out the first line of that psalm, he is in my experience. That is where I identify most with Jesus. Because that's my cry. God, where are you? I can't feel you. I can't sense you. I can't... uh, Nothing about your love gets through this hurt and damage. Where are you? But Jesus knows the whole psalm. He knows... And he says, but I trust you. I can't feel you. I can't sense you, but I trust you. And how do we know that? The the thing he says before he dies is what? Into your hands I give you. I give you my breath. This thing will not take it away from me. But everything that I've got left... I give to you. He would not have prayed that or cried that if he thought his father had turned his back and was gone somewhere else. But he knows the whole psalm. You're not going to look at all of my affliction and despise me. You do not despise the affliction of the afflicted, nor will you turn your face from him. And when he cries, you'll hear. There is no separation here. And Paul the Apostle writing about this in Corinthians says, let me tell you where God the Father was when Jesus is on the cross. For God the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. That's what it says. You want to know where the Father was? Was he back turned somewhere else? He was inside of this. And so, therefore, was the Holy Spirit. And this is why in the shack I had the nail scars in all three. And there is an old icon that is in Lourdes, uh, in, um, in the, uh, the big museum in, in Paris. Lou, thank you. One's a healing place and one's a image place. So, but in the Louvre, there is an icon that they don't know who made it. It's anonymous, but in it, the Father and the, and the Spirit are nailed to the cross behind Jesus, in between Jesus and the wood. This is the beauty of that scene that where Missy's bloodstain should be there, because not only does God climb into this torture device, but he 
turns it into an icon and a monument of grace so precious to us that we'll wear it on our jewelry, around our necks, on our rings. This is a torture machine. But it's become so precious to us because what it's telling us is there is no darkness too deep that he can't go there and transform it into something that is going to be life-giving. This is a God who creates life. There is nothing so broken in me that he can't heal it. Nothing so dead that he can't grow something living in it. And nothing so lost that he doesn't know where it is. And sometimes like the father, he waits. And sometimes like the shepherd, he goes looking. And sometimes like the woman, he, she scours the house. Because it's my coin, it's my sheep, and it's my son. And any parent who has any health at all knows that the kind of love they have for their child transcends any kind of reasonableness. You will lay your life without a question. Thank you. And I'm not lost. Last story. I was in San Diego at a writer's conference because now that I'm a, a celebrity writer, I'm an expert at everything. <laughs> so if you want to know about global warming, you ask me. You know, it's the wildest, crazy, silly thing. And, and I love poking fun at smoke and mirrors because that's all it is. Because then I tell people, inside family... Inside the family and community of faith, for example, there is no platform. Any family, you don't have platform and notoriety. Are you kidding? How ridiculous is that? Right? So, you know, I don't stand up here with any sense of, oh, look at this, you know. I know better. I know where I come from. Right? So I'm, I get invited by a friend of mine named Jim. Jim Henderson is a guy in Seattle, used to be a vineyard pastor, but he's got a problem because he's a pastor, but he doesn't like church much. So... <laughs> So he does these wild, crazy, beautiful things. And he went on eBay one time, and he found that an atheist was selling his soul on eBay. Right? In an auction. For real. So he bought it. $504. It's a going, you know, it was a recession. So... Hemet was the atheist who was selling his soul, and Jim bought the, his soul for 504 bucks. And, and the deal was on the, on the web is that for every 10 bucks somebody paid for his soul, he'd go to a church for an hour, whatever the church of their choice, for every 10 bucks. So Jim had, you know, accrued a lot of hours by the purchase of 504 bucks. I don't know what, maybe it was four tenths of an hour, the last one, or I'm not sure. But, but at, he meets Hemet and gets to know him and a friend of Hemet's um, whose name is uh, Casper. And um, so, and, and Matt Casper is an atheist. And Matt takes up Hemet's challenge with Jim and, and steps into that role. So Jim and, and Matt went to these churches all over the United States. 
They went to big mega churches and high churches and Pentecostal churches and all this. And they wrote a book together called Jim and Casper Go to Church, right? And I mean, you can get it at your bookstore, right? So, so that's a little background on Jim. And Jim asked me to go down to speak at this writer's conference in San Diego, which I did. So I'm there, and it's kind of like, I'm so far out of my league here, I have no clue. Because I, you know, I'm totally an accidental pop, uh, author. I'm a writer, I can understand, but the, pop, the author part is like, nah, this is God's sense of humor. So I'm like, uh, all right. So I go down there, and Matt Casper comes to meet me because he's, Jim's my friend. So Matt, the atheist, comes to meet me, which is really cool. So he comes in, and the first thing he says, I want you to know that I'm an unbeliever. I go, no, you're not. He goes, yes, I am. I said, no, you're not. I am so. It's like I offended him, you know. (laughs) Don't you be putting me in that group, you know, like. So I said, Believing, believing is an activity, not a category. And I said, frankly, I know most of the people that created that category, most of them are struggling with belief too, just so you know. And none of us have found the believe-a-meter, you know, the little thing that says we, you know, good, you believed enough, you're in, temporarily, depending on your religious tradition. But none of us, none of us know where the believe-a-meter is. He goes... What are you talking about? <laughs> I said, look, I come from a tradition where it's about magic words. It's not even about trust, right? As long as you know what the magic words are, then you're automatically in the believer category. Either, you don't even have to actually believe in trust. You know, and, and the thing about it is we've created such an intellectual capacity to create categories like that that we have a category called believer. And so you know, the, the, the key is do you have the card that says you prayed the sinner's prayer because those are the magic words. And if you can say that, then you're automatically somebody who trusts God. <laughs> like for real, you know. <laughs> like what planet do you live on? You know, it's like trust God? No. Just tell me what to do to please him. You give me the rules, you know, and I, I'll give it my best shot over and over and over and over. It's called recommitting your life back to Jesus, you know, and then we can create all this backsliding stuff, which was actually never used for human beings. It was used for nations, but it's a great idea and it can really get people motivated to try again. So, <laughs> and he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm going, <laughs> I say, okay, okay, okay. Just tell me, because I don't think you're an unbeliever. So tell me what you believe in. He goes, you want to know what I believe in? I said, yeah. He goes, nobody ever asked me what I believe in. It's always about what I don't believe. I said, well, the question is whether you're a believer or not. So I want to know what you believe in. He goes, Okay. And this is where he went. I believe in the love I have for my sons. He said, Paul, before I had children, I did not know I had the capacity to love like this. But let me tell you, 
and this is the language he used, I would step in front of a bullet, no questions asked. If they're hurting, I want to take it for them, right? I believe in the love I have for my children. And I said, well, Matt, this is obviously not romantic love or that kind of... So could I describe this love as other-centered, self-giving? He goes, that's exactly what it is. I don't know if you know that, but that's the definition of agape. Right? So I said, okay, so you believe in other-centered, self-giving love. That's brilliant. How about life? Because Jim had told me that this guy loves the elegance of cosmology and the natural order, right? So I said, what do you think about life? And he launches for 15 minutes talking about the intricacy and the elegance of how nature, you know, the quantum side and all this stuff. I mean, he's there, which I love that stuff. So I'm eating it up anyway. And so I said, okay, I got one more question for you. Can someone relate to your children in a way that is absolutely, no, that is that is simply wrong. It is just wrong. Could they relate to your children in a way that is just wrong? And he says, absolutely, which is a really good word for atheist. So, so it's like, absolutely. I said, so far, you've told me that you believe in love, not just any kind of love, but other-centered, self-giving love, and you believe in life, and you believe in truth. And you're telling me, you're trying to convince me that you're an unbeliever. I said, just because you don't know his name. He goes, I know what you're doing. <laughs> and we laughed about it. We talked for two hours. As we're leaving, Jim standing on the other side of me, Matt gives me a hug and he says something to me. And Jim turns to me when Matt leaves and he says, Paul, that was the single greatest compliment I have ever heard Matt Casper give another human being. Because what Matt turned to me and said was, I'm just so thrilled that you exist. See, Matt Casper believes in me now, too. Right? Matt and Jim have written another book called Saving Casper. <laughs> Matt sends me an email and he says, Paul, Jim and I have written another book, and just so you know, I'm still an atheist. But... Would you consider writing the foreword for me? I said, yeah. Are you kidding? How often do you get a chance to write a foreword for an atheist? Like, like this is like the best, right? So, so I write the foreword, and it's a Christian publisher who's going to publish it. And, and the book is cool. Like, there's a chapter called, I really like you, and you seem to be a nice guy, but you're still going to hell. That's one of the chapters, right? <laughs> Right, So it runs into these kind of conversations the whole time, right? Well, the publisher has more trouble with my little forward than they have with the entire book, right? So they rewrite it for me and send it back to me. And I'm looking at this, and I don't even recognize myself in it. And I, and I, so I send kind of a tongue-in-cheek email to Jim and Matt. And I'm going like, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm not the right guy for this. Matt thinks I'm offended. I'm not at all. I think it's hilarious. My, I'm showing my kids, look at this. Look, they changed everything that I wrote, right? So, so Matt sends me this beautiful email. 
Jim knows me, so he's not thinking I'm offended at all, which I'm not. But Matt is really wanting to help me. So he sends me an email, and in it he says, Paul, maybe there's a way that we could find a way to compromise because you have to remember we're dealing with Christians. It's baby steps. So we did. We found a way. I recrafted it. But they, they completely took out the first paragraph. And the first paragraph begins like this. If, like Calvin and Luther, it is true, if, like they said, it is true, that forgiveness precedes confession and repentance, because that's what Calvin and Luther said, which changed the planet. If Calvin and Luther are right, and this is why in the shack, when Papa and Jesus and Sariu come out of the shack from inside his stuff and wrap him up in their embrace, he has not confessed or repented anything. The last thing he has said is, I hate you, and I'm done. If Calvin and Luther are right that forgiveness precedes confession and repentance, then it would also follow that forgiveness precedes faith and belief. You see, Corinthians is right that all of us were included in Jesus and we didn't vote. The question is, how long is it going to take us to begin to understand what we have become a part of? to turn from the darkness of our sense of separation to the embrace of this relationship that is face-to-face. Because it's been done. For God the Father was in Jesus, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. So as ambassadors, beg humanity, please, be reconciled from your side because this is about a relationship of love and all the barriers have been removed except the ones that you hold on to. It's been finished. And that's the beauty of this process that we get involved in, that God climbs into the deepest, darkest places of our heart and begins to craft living out of dead and put us back together. And we don't have to wait till we die as an event, which I thought we did growing up. You know, our salvation was to die. And we couldn't commit suicide because that was kind of a, you know, you go right to jail. So, so we had to hope somebody would take us out. You know. But it was death that became our way of salvation or the damnation of those we didn't like. And we find out that life, who is Jesus, is bigger than death to the praise of his glory. Amen? Amen.